Are you ready to know what you don't know about money? Then you're in the right place. This is Savvy Insights, a podcast on exploring prosperity, seizing opportunities, and preserving freedom, bringing you tips, tricks, tools, and extreme value. Broadcasting from our studio in Toronto, I'm your host, Baz. I want to personally welcome and thank you for joining us today. I'm really glad you're here because this podcast is designed for you. Before we dive in, remember you can reach me on Twitter at insights underscore savvy to discuss further about today's insights. Now let's begin. Winston Churchill famously said in a 1947 address to Parliament, and I quote, It has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. End quote. That could be said about the dollar and the major currencies. I do feel different than Winston Churchill because I do believe in private property rights that democracy doesn't allocate to, but that's besides the point. The Federal Reserve is printing extraordinary sums of money right now, and that's quite a statement given how much money they've printed over the past decade. Before the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed's balance sheet was valued at roughly $850 billion. Within a few years, it has ballooned to over $4 trillion. Now, it's $9 trillion. Last year, the Fed expanded the money supply at a rate not seen since Western civilizations were at war with the Nazis. Yet, the Fed insists there'll be no consequences. Maybe they're right. Maybe they'll be able to print as much money as they want. More precisely, print as much currency as they want. And there'll never be any consequences forever, even until the end of time. Of course, that's not what we see across the street, and that's not what history teaches us. Every time throughout history, when a government or a central bank has dispensed with restraint, has inevitably led to financial ruin. Right now, if you make your living in US dollars, and unless you're diversified, your entire livelihood may rest on the Fed's ability to sweep all negative consequences under the rug and keep them under control, with China watching them from the sidelines. Think about it. The Fed's biggest and primary tool to fight off financial and economic problems is adjusting interest rates. But at this point, with interest rates already so low, they have nearly no leverage left. The US economy is so addicted to cheap money printing and 0% financing offers that raising interest rates in any meaningful way to prevent rampant inflation can cause a major recession, as well as a potential crash of asset prices. And inflation is already here, folks. Year over year, consumer prices, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, CPI, rose 6.2%. That's looking back 12 months. Looking ahead to the next 12 months, however, tells a much different story. February's monthly inflation rate came in at 0.4%, so that means the annualized rate is 7.9% inflation. Almost quadruple. That's four times the target inflation rate set by the Fed at 2% per year. Yes, some of these inflationary forces may or may not be temporary, but traditional finance, TradFi experts, can best hope for is a permanently higher plateau of prices. In other words, once prices climb, the Federal Reserve will never let prices fall. Falling prices is deflation, which for a central banker in a heavily indebted economy is the worst thing imaginable. Because of this, I want to have an in-depth discussion about planning for inflation. So let's visit some alternative fiat currencies to the US dollar in the traditional finance TradFi sector. A focus I practice is being cognizant of protecting against inflation. And that doesn't mean trading one paper currency for another. If we were to look at the Hong Kong dollar, the Hong Kong dollar is a great alternative to holding US dollar. 
because it primarily captures all the upside of the US dollar without the downside. This is because the Hong Kong dollar is quote-unquote pegged to the US dollar. The two move in tandem with each other. Yet, unlike the US, Hong Kong has minimal debts and bountiful resources. In a way, owning it is like owning the US dollar without the liabilities really. But over the last few years, I have a new point of view. Especially given that Hong Kong is being taken over by mainland China and the Communist Chinese Party at an astonishing rate with an increasingly visible Cold War 2.0 emerging. I cannot rule out the possibility that China could suddenly just order Hong Kong to drop its US dollar convertibility. This presents a risk in holding Hong Kong dollars that did not exist even, say, seven years ago. So Hong Kong dollars is no longer the risk-free version of the United States dollars that it once was. As for another currency I'll be speaking about, the Norwegian krone. Norway's krone, or the cockroach currency as I'd like to describe it, because of its ability to withstand economic turmoil, not because I'm insulting them, has strong technical fundamentals. It's backed by one of the most solvent central banks in the world. And by solvent, I really do mean solvent. The Norwegian central bank's equity level as of 2021 constitutes an incredible 35% of its balance sheet versus 0.5% in the United States. That's half of 1% in the US. This higher equity level means that the bank and the Norwegian financial system have plentiful resources in the event of a major crisis. The Norwegian government also has minimal debt and vast financial savings. But this doesn't necessarily mean that the Norwegian krone is the best currency for savings. I view the krone as more of an insurance policy, something that might one day emerge as a hard currency, especially in Europe. And if there's a global economic crisis, individuals and central banks from around the world might run to the krone. That said, the krone is still an unbacked, centralized fiat currency controlled by political institutions. And in a heavily inflationary environment, where the market begins to lose general confidence in all unbacked centralized fiat currencies, it's still likely that the krone would take a hit just as well. This is why I believe the best inflation hedges are real assets. Earlier this month, the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed a 7.9% year-over-year increase in CPI, the Consumer Price Index. That's inflation. That's not a long way from the double-digit CPI increases of the late 1970s. But does this data miss the mark? If you're in the US, are your consumer costs greater than 7.9% compared to a year ago? A visit to the grocery store this week would lead you to a resounding yes to both questions. And on top of consumer price inflation, another phenomenon called shrinkflation or value deflation is playing out. That's when prices of goods remain the same, but the quantity is reduced by 5%, maybe 10% or even more. For example, perhaps you used to spend, say, $2 for a 100 count roll of paper towels. Now the store is selling you the same paper towels for $2, so the price didn't go up, except it's an 80 count rather than a 100 count roll. This value deflation is another form of inflation. Same price, less value. Essentially, your $2 buys 25% fewer paper towels. Now, if you listen to officials like Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, he was stressing that inflation will only be transitory. He was saying that it was a temporary phenomenon that won't last. He was dead wrong, and he admittedly said so. Not everyone was agreeing with the Fed, including Warren Buffett. At Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting in May 2021, Buffett said, and I quote, We are seeing very substantial inflation. It's very interesting. We are raising prices, people are raising prices to us, and it's being accepted. End quote. On one hand, 
we have an ivory tower dwelling central banker who swore by the economic models and his experts and thinks that he can press the right buttons and crank the right dials. And on the other hand, we have testimony from an investor in the real economy, someone who sees the price increases across Berkshire's holdings and those company suppliers. Make no mistake, Buffett and I and other people in real life were right. In our opinion, we were in the beginning stages of price inflation, even stagflation. Stagflation describes a depressed economy coupled with inflation, as we saw in the late 1970s in the States. And as this money printing continues unabated, and inflation dials up as I expect, nearly all unbacked centralized fiat currencies could rapidly lose value, the US dollar included. One major driver of inflation is absurd government spending. Let's examine the grand spending plans in the US for example. Joe Biden had a combined total of $6 trillion in spending in just his first 100 days in office. And to be clear, that's on top of $4.8 trillion in spending that was already scheduled for the fiscal year of 2021. This means that there was a minimum of $11 trillion of spending that was passed last fiscal 2021. Now, the obvious knee-jerk reaction by many critics of the present administration is that $6 trillion, let alone $11 trillion, is an appalling figure that will bankrupt the US. But let's do our best to be more objective and dig a little deeper. Yes, $11 trillion in spending is an absurd figure. It constituted roughly half the size of the entire US economy when it was proposed back then. And it added at least $7 trillion to the US national debt. Yet, if we're intellectually honest, most experienced investors would agree that debt can sometimes be a very shrewd tool for maximizing returns. Think about it. Right now, interest rates are still near record lows. Just a couple of days ago, before this hits your eardrums, the 30-year treasury bond yield was just around 2.48. That's a joke. For reference, in 1981, the yield on a 30-year bond was 15%. So, when the Treasury Department borrows $7 trillion for 30 years, they'll only have to pay an additional $160 billion in annual interest rates on that money. Now, remember that the US federal government's annual tax revenue is generally between 16% and 18% of GDP. In other words, the government's slice of the US economy is about 16 to 18%. So if the government borrows $7 trillion and has to pay an additional $160 billion per year in interest, that means they'll basically break even, even if the economy only grows by a trillion dollars. The math is simple. If they invest $7 trillion wisely and the economy grows by $1 trillion and their 16% tax revenue slice of that $1 trillion is an additional economic growth, it will net them $160 billion of increased tax revenue per year. That's enough to pay the interest, meaning that effectively borrowing $7 trillion for free, and if $7 trillion in debt is enough to grow the economy by $2 trillion, then they'll earn an additional $320 billion per year in a new tax revenue, which is enough to pay off the entire $7 trillion after 30 years, just like a home mortgage. Savvy business people understand the potential benefits of debt. Corporate CFOs, entrepreneurs, and real estate investors make these sort of calculations all the time. They know that if they can borrow cheaply and make great investments, then everyone wins. Just ask Michael Saylor. But herein lies the primary problem. The US government does not make great investments. Government has a track record of making terrible financial decisions and even worse investments. It cannot execute properly managed talent and resources to finish a project on time on a budget to the appropriate standard. Remember, we're talking about the same people who spend billions of dollars on a website that does not even work till today. 
or who would think the country should take on debt to finance gender studies in Pakistan? Given their dismal history, it's likely that their increased debt plus all the new taxes, regulations, etc. will hold back economic growth, not enhance it. This dramatic rise in spending is fueling inflation. The government finances all of these wild spending programs by going deeper into debt, but their pool of lenders is rapidly drying up. Foreign governments have their problems to deal with and are not as keen as they used to be to finance US government's coffers, and the Chinese have been reducing their holdings as well. The biggest lender these days, by far, is the Federal Reserve, which first has to create fiat currency out of nothing before loaning it out to the Treasury Department. Last year alone, the Fed created more currency than in any year in US history except for 1943. Their foot is clearly on the gas pedal, and as they create more currency, the economy and fiscal system are flooded with fiat that pushes asset prices up, food prices up, fuel prices, and just about anything else that the US dollar buys. Think about it like this. Suppose you live in this very primitive economy that produces only a thousand apples per year. And for the sake of simplicity, let's say that it's the only product or service that exists, apples. If the total money supply in this primitive economy is $1,000, then this means that each apple would be more or less a dollar each. But then one day, some sagacious central banker decides to double the money supply to stimulate the economy. So now, there's $2,000 in the system, but the economy is still only producing 1,000 apples. Sooner or later, a bidding war for apples will ensue until the price of each apple rises to $2. This is inflation. Wealth isn't created because central bankers print more currency. Wealth is created when production of goods increases. But wait, there's more. It's bad enough that the Fed is rapidly expanding the dollar supply. But to make matters worse, government policies are encouraging less production, i.e. fewer apples to be produced. The $300 per week federal unemployment payments create a huge disincentive to work. If you're a small business owner, you're already familiar with this pain. The labor market is so skewed that some California restaurants are offering $21 per hour to dishwashers. Anything less, and employers cannot lure people off their couches and pry them away from day-long Netflix binges. We're witnessing government and central bank officials follow the monetary prescription of the Oprah Winfrey show. More cash for you, more cash for you, more cash for everybody. But in this real-world episode, there are actual consequences to giving away free stuff. They can be summed up in a simple math addition. Expansion of the money supply plus incentives to not work equals inflation. These are not controversial statements. This is not some wild conspiracy. Inflation is a concern of the largest companies on the planet. Procter & Gamble, Hershey's, Clorox, Shake Shack, Kimberly Clark, Whirlpool and Coca-Cola all have announced price increases to their customers. And according to the Bank of America Global Research, the number of mentions of inflation on corporate earning calls have increased 800% compared to last year. Investors are very worried. Consumers can see it. They're starting to be hit on two fronts. One, a currency that's being devalued by the day. Two, less stuff to exchange for this devalued currency. Sprinkling consumer expectations in a little bit more time, and then the inflationary spiral could get a cough into even higher gear. As more consumers realize that prices are continuously rising, they may be tempted to buy now rather than later. The expectation of higher prices could boost demand for dwindling goods and services. Increased demand could further rise prices, and consumers will see higher prices. That could even lead to a greater expectation of higher prices in the future. Therefore, demand increases and so on. 
If the inflationary spiral is severe enough, the federal government could even step in with their price controls. But that's a discussion for another day and something you cannot control. Here's what you can control. How are you positioning yourself for substantially higher inflation? It starts with changing your perspective. Here's some clear thinking for a much different world. If there's been one certainty over the past two years, it's that you can't rely on the US Treasury and Federal Reserve to protect your purchasing power of your savings. Trillions in spending in 2020 and 2021, and trillions more to come in 2022 should be confirmation enough. This means having to take matters into your own hands. And that starts with some clear thinking. How do we approach this much different world that we find ourselves in? Number one, acknowledge that the world has fundamentally changed. I'll make an exception and temporarily abandon my distaste for cliches. The world has fundamentally changed. A cliche, yes, but it's also accurate. It's difficult to find another time when conditions have changed so dramatically and events are happening so quickly. For example, an abusive unconstitutional lockdown at the command of public officials. Retroactive Marxism where retroactive tax increases, wealth taxes, exit taxes, unrealized capital gains taxes are all on the table. Unprecedented cyber attacks that are essentially acts of war. Extreme asset bubbles exist in nearly every major asset class. Confidence in public institutions is crumbling. Woke mob hysteria is destroying people's lives and livelihoods. The government is providing incentives to not work while spending astonishing sums of currency on dubious projects, and the central bank is creating new currency at an out-of-control pace. Rarely have so many social, political, financial, and macroeconomic issues collided so harshly, and it's important to acknowledge how different this is from the past several decades. In many of the books I've read, I've come across how decades ago the United States was the largest economy in the world by far, that the US prestige was unparalleled, that the US dollar was dominant and US technological prowess was untouchable, and that US society was the envy of the world. Today, there are still many, many wonderful things about the United States. But at the same time, as far as I can tell, I'd say so much has changed if what I read was right. Collectively, we're seeing skyrocketing murder rates, while politicians bow to the most radical of their constituents to defund or even abolish the police, which was just like a year ago. We're seeing woke mob hijack political priorities, dictating everything from if money can be spent to support freedom convoys protests in Canada to what words we're allowed to use on social media outlets. Technologically, the US has started to fall behind. China dominates in supercomputing. Taiwan dominates in high-tech manufacturing. Most tellingly, when Intel needs to produce its most advanced microchips, it has to outsource the production to Taiwan because Intel no longer has the expertise. Asia has rapidly closed the gap in industries like robotics, mobile technology, nuclear fusion, and AI. There are some areas where the West still dominates, like biotechnology or the psychotechnology. Psychotechnology is behind getting people to click on more Facebook ads, as if that's technology, right? The technological landscape is far more competitive than it was 10, 20 years ago. Just imagine the terrible impact that today's woke school curriculum will have on US science and tech sectors over the next 10 years. Moreover, years ago, you could confidently acquire US government bonds knowing that you'd be paid a reasonable rate in a stable currency. Now, you're guaranteed to lose money after adjusting for inflation, and it's questionable whether you'll ever be paid back on a long-term bond. Bottom line is, you can no longer think it's 1995, and the US was dominant with no end in sight. Number two, you need to have a global perspective. 
If 100% of your net worth is dominated in a single fiat currency, consider some fresh thinking. There are plenty of great overseas investment opportunities. High quality, proven businesses that generate revenue in currencies other than the US dollar, with little to no debt, and led by talented people with integrity. These companies may provide goods or services to expanding economies, or be located in a country with favorable consumer demographics, like the US of the 1950s and 60s that I've read. And unlike companies in the S&P 500, these companies are not trading at 50 to 75 or even 100 times earnings. Quite the opposite. It's possible to buy shares in businesses like these for less than the company's net cash. This way, you're executing what's called an asymmetric trade. While you await the market to realize the company's value, you'll have some opportunity cost. What you could have done with that capital instead, but otherwise, since shares are already cheap, there's minimal downside and a potentially large profit opportunity. Another point on international diversification. Global capital flows to where it's most welcomed. Gradually, the U.S. is becoming less hospitable place for investors and entrepreneurs, and this is certainly going to be a factor in driving capital and prosperity overseas. The takeaway is simple. Adopt a global perspective and today, more than ever, carefully weigh your investment opportunities in terms of potential upside versus downside risks. And on the topic of risks, number three, don't make bad investments just to protect against inflation. Take a look at Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, aka TIPS. A special type of government bond issued for up to 30 years, these are common recommendations to hedge inflation. But over the past couple of decades, TIPS has largely failed to keep up with inflation. And if you're not the type of person who would ordinarily loan money to the government for, say, three decades, then why would you even consider buying a 30-year tip simply as a hedge against inflation? This is a common mistake. Going all in on any investment strategy, including inflation hedges. Yes, inflation is here. And it could be with us for quite some time. But there's no reason to stockpile an asset that is ordinarily far outside of your comfort zone or expertise. And remember, anything is possible. Someone at the Federal Reserve may summon enough cojones to dramatically increase interest rates. Unlikely, but possible. Or the government may stop spending so much currency or the bond market throws a tantrum and starts demanding higher rates. Some of these moves could tame inflation and cause a price decline in inflation hedges, so don't go overboard. Number four, target specific scarce assets and not asset classes as a whole. During roaring booming times, fueled by either organic growth or Fed-induced frenzy, generally create mediocre overpriced assets. Look no further than today's assets. We have perennially unprofitable companies, Uber, for example, has never turned a profit from its operations. Its operating cash flow has totaled negative $11 billion over the past five years. With no bright horizon in sight, yet its stock is still worth roughly $56 billion. And then there's memes. Joke currencies with no real utility posting enormous gains. In April 2021, Dogecoin traded just around $0.07. Cents. In the first week of May 2021, that's only a month later, it had rocketed to 74 cents from 7 cents. As of recording this, Dogecoin is down to 11 cents, losing 80% from its all-time highs nearly a year later. But then again, if you bought at 7 cents in April 2021 and today it's at 11 cents in March 2022, would you be happy with a 57% return on a gamble a year later? 
When bad times hit, however, the worst investments or speculation tend to be washed away very quickly. Quality investments survive. One defining feature of a quality investment is scarcity. Whether a public or private company, finding or putting together a talented management team leading that business is scarce. Having great management on your side is truly a zero-sum game. They're actively working to improve the business that you've invested in. They're executing on this company's strategy. You, not some other investor at a different company, you benefit from their time, skills, and expertise. And even better, great management coupled with pricing power and or a moat, a moat is a strategic business advantage, can preserve or even grow your wealth despite a highly inflationary environment. These are all scarce resources. In cryptocurrency, code which provides both efficient scalability and real utility is scarce. Collectibles like limited edition watches, art, select vintage fine wines, uh, coins, sports or trading cards, uh, comic books or first edition books even, and even certain weapons have obvious scarcity. The market should be sufficiently large to attract demand if you like to sell the assets at some point in the future. So striking the balance is really key. And as with any other market, collectibles require substantial knowledge to make good calls on what to buy. Without a sound knowledge base, you're potentially setting yourself up for losses. In my opinion, the best hedges against inflation will be those that are scarce and undervalued assets. And speaking of undervalued, number five, consider the asset class that's still undervalued. Precious metals. Since the all-time high of $2,075 per ounce in August 2020, gold remains down from that mark. It's one of the few assets that are not near an all-time high. That same goes for silver, which is nearly 50% down from its all-time high of $50 per ounce set around April 2011. Gold prices are now down from their August 2020 high, and frankly, I think that's one of the things that makes gold so attractive right now. It's one of the only major assets that are not at breaking limits and at an all-time high. That said, I'm not primarily focused on short-term price movements of precious metals. Holding physical gold and silver, either in your possession or at a secure vault, should be a long-term decision. Think of it like an insurance policy. If the proverbial lever hits the fan, you won't be any worse off to own an asset with over a 5,000-year history of value and markability. Despite the trillions of fiat dollars keystroked into existence and spent yearly, It's amazing that you can still trade your fiat dollars for gold and silver, at these prices anyways, but that opportunity won't last forever. So consider adding to your stash physical precious metals, the original inflation hedge. A few people may ask, hey Baz, what about cryptocurrencies as an inflation hedge? Well, I don't take sides in the grand philosophical battle between physical precious metals versus cryptocurrencies for two reasons, really. One, I own gold, but I'm not a gold bug. I own cryptocurrencies, but I'm not a cryptocurrency fanatic either. And two, I don't see the choice between the two as an either-or proposition. Instead, you should consider both as an inflation hedge. As mentioned earlier, physical gold has millennia's worth of wealth preservation history on its side. And although cryptocurrency is a nascent asset, it certainly has caught the attention of speculators including myself. Remember, in the Bitcoin Genesis block it reads, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. Bitcoiners were on to inflation from the get-go, and hence the scarcity of 21 million BTCs that will forever only exist. So yes, although yet untried in inflationary times, Bitcoin may preserve your purchasing power alongside gold and silver, 
In fact, I suspect that it'll not only preserve it, it'll increase your purchasing power as time goes on. So the right allocation will be a private choice that you have to consider. So please, make a deliberate decision. In a Wall Street Journal article published not too long ago, the headline read, Everything screams inflation. Investors are woefully unprepared for what may be a once-in-a-generation shift in the market. After this month's CPI figures were released, higher inflation should not be a surprise for anybody. Still, many investors will still listen to public leaders and public experts who dismiss this inflationary wave just as temporary. But intelligent, rational people think differently. They have a plan B. And in my view, inflation hedges should definitely be part of everyone's plan B, especially nowadays. If you enjoyed this week's insight, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new insight is shared. If you have any questions, feel free to reach me at Twitter at underscore savvy. And if you haven't yet, I would immensely appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review this podcast with a four or a five star review and share it with your friends if you so feel inclined. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you're leaving with some great insights that can help you in building yourself up to even greater heights. Until next time, carpe diem and stay savvy. Bye bye. Neither this podcast or any content presented by Savvy Insights are intended to provide professional tax or financial advice. This information is intended to be used and must be used for information pay purposes only. Savvy Insights are not your investment or tax advisors, and this should not be considered tax advice. It is very important to do your analysis before making any investment or employing any tax strategy. You should consider your circumstances and speak with professional advisors before making any investment. The information contained in this insight is based on Savvy Insight researchers, opinions, as well as representations made by company management. I believe the information presented in this insight to be true and accurate at the time of publication, but do not guarantee the accuracy of every statement, nor guarantee the information will not change in the future. It is important that you independently research any information that you wish to rely upon, whether to make an investment or tax decision or otherwise. No content on the SavvyInsightPodcast.com website or related sites, nor any content in marketing materials, emails, reports, or related content constitutes nor should be understood as constituting a recommendation to enter any security transactions or engage in any of the investment strategies mentioned in this content, nor any offer of securities. Savvy Insight employees, officers, and directors may participate in any investment described in this content when legally permissible, and do so on the same investment terms as subscribers. Savvy Insight employees, officers, or directors receive no financial compensation from entities who were mentioned in this report.